Welcome to episode 12 of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Bear Lumblad, and... And me, Richard Allen. So today we'll try something different. Uh, we have usually tried to talk about topics that are related to policy substance. And we have talked a lot about you know, things like privacy and copyright and all of those different um, classical tech policy subjects. But today we wanted to explore a little bit more about what a public policy team does and how it usually is constructed or how you can think about structuring it. And we both had the, the pleasure of building teams and thinking about structure quite a lot. And I, <clears throat> I'll start off with sort of a, um, an initial observation, which is that most policy teams are not consciously constructed as they begin. What happens is that a company gets a letter from a politician or a call from an agency, um, a regulatory agency, and they don't have anyone who can deal with it. So they look around, and then they hire their first policy person, right? That seems to me to be usually how policy teams are started, not through conscious planning and, and sort of foresight, but, but rather sort of as a, almost as a defensive measure, don't you think? I think that's exactly right. I mean, when a, when a tech company starts up, you know, the, the first people they'll hire are the engineers who actually build the thing. And Quite early on, they'll probably hire a lawyer because they've got to incorporate somewhere and make sure that what they're doing is is correctly structured and that the shareholdings are properly allocated and registered, all that stuff. And then they might hire some uh, salespeople if they've they've now got something to actually sell to people. They'll hire some salespeople, and probably the last thing they want to hire is is somebody to deal with government. From a you know an ideal perspective, you would just keep growing and building your product, and you would never have to deal with any governments anywhere. Um, but exactly as you describe, at some point, it, once you start to sort of become successful, or if something happens on your service, even when it's quite small, maybe something bad happens. There's an incident somewhere that involves somebody using your service. At that point, a politician or a government agency will will get in touch with you. And you're right, the company goes, ah, how do we deal with this? Uh, and maybe the first time that happens, they give it to the lawyers. Uh, but then they realize it's not you know, really a legal question. And then they, well, how do we deal with that? So maybe, maybe they'll hire an external agency. That might be the first step. And then as they get more and more of these queries, particularly if they're complicated, particularly if they're international, then they may start to think, well, we actually need a person in the company who can deal with these things on, on a long-term basis. And the lawyers are sort of our elder brothers and sisters there because they, they know that they don't know how to do this stuff because they have come in touch with people who do public policy. Usually they, they can find them at law firms or they've run into them because a few of us have a legal background, although that's not necessary. And so, so they will know that there is now this need for the company to develop a public policy position. But they will not usually have the expertise when it comes to how you structure a public policy team, which is why those first couple of years are going to be organic growth you know you get another letter and you're like oh we need somebody who takes care of that too and and then you get into a market that's really complicated and where there are people threatening you with hearings and stuff and so you need someone so you start to accrue a policy team almost a little bit like you're you're sort of defensively marking all of those different spots that are that seem to be trouble spots for you um, but at some point you reach you reach a threshold where you need to sit down and say, okay, this obviously seems to be something the company needs. Much as it needs a sales team or an engineering team, it needs a policy team because we are active in and we have a footprint in societies we operate 
and, and markets we operate on. So what would you, let's say, let's role play with, what would you advise a company that's reached that threshold mm-hmm. point? They sort of, they suddenly realize, okay, we just need to, to build this out. What would you say? Yeah. So, I mean, first, there's a really important foundational question, which is, which is where you locate your policy team. And, and you described the lawyers, I think, just now as the, the elder brothers and sisters, which is, which I think is sort of reasonably accurate. And and so one model is that you build a policy team sort of within your legal function. And I would say that that makes sense if most of the issues you're dealing with are quasi-legal. In other words, if it's regulatory inquiries that are coming in, and that's where you're dealing with governments. But in, in many other instances, the issues that you're dealing with are really about your reputation. And and it's not that you're necessarily doing anything wrong illegally, but you know politicians want to summon you to hearings, uh, and and they want to get you out in the public domain, and the and the arguments arguments are being fought out in the press. And if that's the case, it may be that your policy team sits more naturally with your communications team, uh, because the things are being fought out in public. I mean, certainly, you know, my experience at Facebook was that most policy issues were raised with a, a, a public letter to Mark Zuckerberg that you may never even receive, but, but would appear on the front page of a newspaper. So if the challenge from the policymaker is one that is being played out primarily in the newspaper, uh, then at that point, you're, you're sort of looking at your policy work as very close to communications work. So I say a, a foundational question is really to consider what kind of policy governmental interaction are are we getting today and are we likely to get in the future is that mainly technical regulatory work and uh, you know i described earlier my previous work was with cisco uh, cisco systems who build big routers that run the internet so in a company like cisco most of the issues are quite frankly sort of nerdy and technical (laughs) Uh, they're not uh, issues that are very interesting to journalists and are not going to play out on the front page so they're there's a kind of logic to building a quite legalistic technical policy team. Move across to somewhere like Facebook, prime example of where most of the policy issues are going to be played out very much in public. And there you may want to structure your team so it's much more about communicating your position as a company, (laughs) working with your communications colleagues, um, and you'll have a legal team sort of working in parallel, dealing with the with the regulations. It's, it's, so, it's, foundational question number yeah. one: it, on, on What that, kind of issues are you going to deal think with? It's interesting because uh, at Google we had both. Uh, so the Google policy team yeah. started as a part of the legal team and sort of was an integrated part of the legal team, um, because it was dealing mostly at that point, I think, with with uh, pure internet policy, domain names, figuring out things like that. So, took on very quickly copyright work, privacy work, of course, all that stuff. Then there was a long era for that policy team where it uh, reported into comms and sort of was a part of the comms team and was working with that. And then it reverted back. So it's it's interesting. I'd, I'd like to tease out, because I, I have a view on this as well, but I'd like to sort of hear you tease out. What do you think are the, the pros and cons of those different structures? Because... I, I guess a lot of people, if you're if you're a startup founder and you're thinking about how do I build a policy team, you're going to have to figure out where it reports into. And, and there's also the third alternative that we haven't discussed, that it reports into the founder. I mean, there has to be a set of cases where that is probably not a bad idea, right? So what do you think? Yeah. Um, I think the reality is, so, so when, you, when you're sitting inside a company um, and, and an issue blows up related to your company, it usually will blow up in multiple dimensions. And the, and the typical dynamic is 
you've done something that's upset a group of people. And, and most of the issues don't come out of nowhere. We should recognize that. So something about your product has upset a, a group of people. Those people will often go to the regulator and to uh, politicians at the same time. If a politician senses that a group of constituents are upset, that they will then start to raise this issue. Then the media will get very interested because now it's a, a, a sort of juicy story. <laughs> Um, and so all of a sudden, you've got think, stuff coming in from every front. So you've upset some users uh, and maybe represented groups of users. If there's something substantive there, the regulator may have picked it up. You may now have a legal challenge. And you've also got politicians sort of very excited about it. And then you've also got the media uh, potentially rowing in. So the sort of long answer is you've got to be able to respond on all fronts with the right mix. Mm. And and the really important thing is recognizing that around this same issue, all of those dimensions do exist. And you've got to talk uh, to each of those constituent groups, perhaps in a slightly different way around the same substance. Mm. Um, so it's no good talking to politicians in a very legalistic way, <laughs> because that, to them that will sound very defensive and hostile. Uh, when when you're going out and talking to the press, you, you know you will have a different way of talking, but you've got to keep your eye over your shoulder because you don't want to go and say things to the press that then get you back in trouble with the the lawyers and the regulators. So essentially, you've got to work across all those dimensions. So my advice would be: make sure you're not looking at this unidimensionally. Making sure that you've you've got people who can cover all aspects and that they work closely together. But then the way you structure your team might reflect where the balance of trouble is. So it's not, it's not to neglect the other areas, but to weight it according to the balance of trouble. And where an issue is going to be existential for your company, absolutely, it needs to not be buried two or three layers down. It's got to be right there at the top table. And, and again, that will depend company by company. Yeah. Frankly, again, we work in the business of public policy, but if I was the founder of a tech company, I would ideally want to have a company where I could bury public policy two or three layers down because I'm not getting these massive issues. But well, for most I, tech companies that are trying to change I, the world, they will get them. Well, and I, I also think, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, though. I think that's true for consumer tech companies yeah. because that's sort of where we, we have our experience now. And I think I think if you if you sort of ideally you just sell your stuff, you do your advertising, you sort of you manage your technology and you improve your products, etc. But I also think that the second way of technology innovation that's now coming, the digital transformation, is going to be heavily geared towards the industrial, which means that you'll have a ton of regulated industries. And in those, I actually tend to think that public policy is a key part of BizDev, that it's a part of business development, and that it's actually a part of how you think about the markets you're opening, how you think about the different kinds of products you're crafting, because those products will ride on a regulatory infrastructure and on a political uh, consensus that you need to understand. So if you go back way, way back in time when banks in the United States couldn't have or own a brokerage, that was a really uh, interesting limitation of the way that they could develop their business. And so knowing all of these limits, knowing all of these boundaries becomes essential. So for, for those companies, I think we also move away from the usual conception of public policy as a defensive tool into becoming something that's really sort of at the heart of some of your, not all, but some of your business development, right? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Again, I think if you are a successful company in the digital space, 
it is likely that you're going to have a profound effect on various sectors. I mean, that's what successful digital companies do when they get to a certain scale. And I think we can underestimate that. And when you do have a profound effect, somebody's going to lose out or be affected. And again, we get, we'll look at the Facebook example. Uh, when I joined Facebook back in the day, I don't think anyone saw it as a major political force. And in fact, I, I remember early days so having to go around to television stations at election times going, Facebook will be really important in this election. Look, look at how politicians are using it. And it, and it was not something that people had thought of. It's a platform for kids to uh, swap silly you're, stories you're and photos. You're success then, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but if we'd, yeah, maybe if we'd been able to project forward then, you would have said, look, at some point we're going to have a profound effect potentially on the political landscape. And when we do... <laughs> Uh, it is inevitable that the politicians are going to get involved and this is going to become a big issue and therefore we need to be you know preparing for that now and so again uh, yeah can we model a company that would be super successful have a profound effect uh, and not have that profound effect that means politicians get 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 interested and get involved and i think that's hard to do we've talked about this before i mean one interesting example that we can come back to is apple <laughs> as a company which is a tech company, but I guess because it's primarily associated with hardware and the hardware is not seen necessarily as the thing that is impacting on on businesses or politics or anything else. It's the services that run over it that are seen as impactful. Perhaps a, a tech company like Apple has tended to stay a little bit lower on the radar, but the people that build the services and when those services change the business landscape for media or commerce or politics or any other sector or health or education like those are going to become front and center for policy yeah i think the apple example is super interesting because a lot of people uh, quote that example and say well apple seems to be able to to stay out of trouble etc i think a i don't think that's true anymore because i think they're in plenty of trouble and i think that they're they're in several um they sort of have a, a series of large cases coming down the pike also because they're shifting over to services you're, you're not wrong the other thing i think is interesting is that people tend to miss that the strategy you adopt as a company on a public policy or a political front is dependent on the strategy that other players also adapt. So an Apple is only possible. And, you know, we used to characterize the Apple public policy when we talked about this as don't answer the fucking phone. I'm sorry for the French, because it's essentially not getting involved. This is sort of a really, it's a really viable strategy if and only if there exists a few dunces that answer the phone all the time, i.e. Facebook and Google. And so I think that the reality then is that their their position is not possible if they were if everyone took it. And so it's a niche that they've found that I think is really interesting. I also think that Apple um, still is riding on some of the on some of the design magic that they're doing. And and it's it's kind of there's something fascinating here that we have. We should dig into this at some point. So why can a company that builds really beautiful things get away from political questions? And I think I think it's it's when I saw some kind of survey that suggested that almost all politicians had an iPhone and they were happy with it. And so I think that there's something there about the deep emotional attachment to the hardware that also could be could be teased out at least. I mean that's a a very rough yeah. hypothesis, but still. I think that may be part, but I also think this constituent-driven or complaint-driven attention of politicians is real. And again, I've been there as, as a politician, and when you get 
you know, your, your post bag, uh, now your virtual post bag is, is full of complaints and they're real complaints from real people about something, then, then that does push it right up your agenda. And, and, and I think it's probably the case that, you know, uh, people are not complaining in huge numbers about their iPhones or their, uh, Mac computers, but they are complaining about an experience that they had on one of the online services. Yeah. And, and so I think that's really also quite an important part that we sometimes miss i mean it's it's uh, again you're we're we've been inside you're sitting inside um you know the best way to have a quiet life in a public policy team is if the company you work for never does anything wrong <laughs> or upsets anybody um and you know we, we'll go and defend them but but the reality is that a lot of the attention you get is because something has gone wrong um and and so you're sort of trying to deal with the with the aftermath of that and when something goes wrong people go to politicians and politicians want to defend their well, constituents I, I think we can put a finer point on that because one of the things that uh, one one of the things that i think that people who are not just familiar people who should have just heard of public policy uh, don't get is that most of the challenges you will see as a company are not going to be challenges that originate with politicians. Not only are they going to originate with constituents, as you say, but they're going to originate with competitors. So so the, the landscape, the policy landscape you operate in is not a two-person game between you and the regulator, where the regulator sits down and then decides one day that I'll go over Facebook and see if there are any challenges there. There is a n-person game where you will have competitors, you will have NGOs, you will have all of those others that then escalate challenges to the politicians and regulators who then come back down to your principal, to your company, the company you're representing. So there's a, and, and the reason I think this is important is that when we talk about the location of the policy team in the company, uh, it's actually really important that it's also deeply tied into the partnership discussions. Because if you are alienating all of your partners and you're sort of, you're arrogant or you're just acting too fast for them to follow, you are also going to generate a world of policy hurt down the line. And one of the, one of the best innovations that I saw in public policy was actually a cross-functional forum that was set up uh, within the EMEA group um, at Google, where everyone simply... EMEA, Nicholas, EMEA for the non-nerdy. Oh, sorry, EMEA is, is, a, is an acronym that stands for Europe, Middle East, Africa. It also includes Russian Turkey, which is very confusing. But, but yeah. that's right. So within the EMEA group, uh, they set up this, this sort of cross-functional forum to discuss reputational issues. And the precondition, and this was, this was done by a, the brilliant Matt Britton, who heads up that team, the precondition was you leave your hat outside the room, you then come into the room, and we discuss this as if we're all responsible for it which was super helpful. And I think goes back to your earlier point that, that you, do, you don't want to be too uh, one-dimensional, unidimensional about this stuff. You, the reporting lines may matter much less than the working uh, sort of methods or working uh, routines that you put in place. And having a cross-functional forum that deals with reputation and has the ability to escalate that to the company leadership, I think is is far more important, orders of magnitude more important than if you report into legal or comms. Because at the end of the day, a policy team is a multiplicative team at a company that really adds and multiplies the value of those other functions, I think. Yeah. I, I t- tend to agree, yes. I, I mean, I think it's a case that if you if you are stacking up enemies... <laughs> Uh, then it's going to come back and bite you. And so, yeah, and I, again, I think this is one of those foundational questions as well for companies is, are they going to take, you know, a very, I know, um, either aggressive or dismissive stance towards the people whose 
older businesses they're upsetting mm. or are they going to try and uh, soften the blow and uh, i think there are basically three stances you can take one is you, you know the the sort of super aggressive look we've come into this market our digital product is better you guys tough luck you're just going to go dinosaur. out of business you're and going arguably to die that's, that moment, yeah you're dinosaur exactly and that, and that comes across as very arrogant, and it's particularly it compounded arrogant, if you are. I mean, are... It, it is very arrogant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things. And, and if yeah, you're yeah, foreign, yeah. yeah. And again, if you, this is compounded by, like, if you're seen as an external foreign force. So, yeah, so, you know, a, a European media landscape is being disrupted by an American company who are coming in going, well, your newspapers, the, you know, the yesterday's news, uh, tough luck, you're all getting out of business. Yeah, uh, let the strong survive. If we're survive. also going to be forensic about mistakes that have been made, I think yeah. that's, that's probably one. I would say that that um, not uniformly, but I think arrogance vis-a-vis telcos, vis-a-vis newspapers, all those things. And arrogance not necessarily out of maliciousness, but more out of a wish to act speedily and a sense that you're on on the right side of the future or history in this case, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so I say, so that's the, yeah, that's the sort of most aggressive, arrogant approach. There's a second approach, which, which is um, to genuinely go slow and try and fit in. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure it's not very strong in the DNA, certainly of uh, most U S based tech companies. I'm again, people may have examples where they see this, where, to take that same example, you would come into the market and say, you know, uh, yes, we may be causing some disruption to the traditional media market. Um, but if you guys want us to go slower so that you've got more time to adapt, that's fine. <laughs> and where you you genuinely are not uh, trying to disrupt too much. Now, given that most digital companies have disruption in their DNA, and I say particularly the Silicon Valley variety, I think that would be really unusual. But there's some sense that Certainly, perhaps more, uh, or, or the sense you get, perhaps, of some of the Chinese companies, for example, um, is that they are more uh, along those lines. They're more willing to come in and say, you know, you set the conditions for our market entry and we'll follow that. Not least because in China, that's what they have to do, the government there. <laughs> and we've seen some re- recent examples. You know, if, if you're too cocky and too disruptive in the Chinese domestic market, the government's going to clip your wings. And so, it's a, so you have to play the game, I think, a lot more. So very interesting sort of different dynamics from different cultures. But Yeah, yeah I just wanted to add, because I think you're absolutely right. I also think there's another example of that that's interesting. In, in this model where we have a first generation of tech companies that are disruptive consumer-oriented companies, I think we also, when we look at the second uh, generation that exists in more regulated industry, and I'm thinking particularly about health tech now, actually. I think the health tech industry has to do exactly that second, as adopt that second strategy that you mentioned, because they are moving into a system that's not just sort of old and sometimes slow. It's also a system that is not long-term sustainable. It would ultimately fail because of the cost disease that's sort of plaguing it. But it's publicly funded and publicly legitimized, which means that if you come in and try to disrupt it, you're never going to find a foothold and you're never going to be able to change it for the better. So I think you will see a lot more of your second strategy when you're moving from from pure consumer into to more regulated industries, I think. Exactly. And I think you're right. Health tech is a great example of that, where it has actually gone relatively slowly uh, compared with other bits of the sector. So you have your kind of Fitbit type applications. 
Um, but people have not come in. There's been some tentative steps to say, we'll offer you, you know, an online health record a la sort of Google, Facebook type technology, not really taken off because you can only work at the pace at which the official health record systems work. It's not, you know, just coming in and going, you guys are terrible. I've built a much better alternative actually isn't going to work because you've got to exchange data typically in a very sort of highly regulated environment with these systems. So there's a great example, I think, in health tech. Um, so there's those slower, you know, re- genuine partnership will move at the speed you're moving relationships. And I said there was a third model. And I think the third model is a little bit of amalgam of the two, which is, which is you know, the tech company that really wants to be disruptive, but tries to soften the blow and sort of hide its teeth. <laughs> and And I think that's sometimes where that first model of uh, super aggressive disruption ends up. And again, um, perhaps that's the way one might characterize the way that companies like Google and Facebook are being with the traditional media now, where I think their DNA is is still very disruptive, but they're playing the game and and being much more cooperative and working much more in partnership. I don't think they've genuinely slowed down to the point where uh, they they, uh, don't want to keep making progress and, and don't want to keep disrupting, but they're working much more in partnership. And again, it's a very viable model. That's the sort of disrupt with a softer landing model. Um, if the first one is disrupt at any cost, and the second one is try not to disrupt, uh, the third is disrupt but more slowly with a soft landing, uh, and that's the one where I'd say we often. And I, I end think up. I mean exactly, and I, another way of sort of framing that is to say that the first one is is a pure competition on the basis of the technology, trying to make sure that you get the users to choose your side. The second is much more interesting because it's actually more of a negotiation than competition. And the third is negotiated competition, which is where you end up when one party successfully takes and musters all of the regulators against you as well. So what happens is that you have these two first forms that you describe really well, where you have pure competition and you have negotiation. And what happens if you have a successful uh, opponent, if you're a pure competitive strategist is that you end up in a negotiated competition. I think a lot of the tech markets today can be described as negotiated competitive markets where you're sort of negotiated around what kind of competition you'll be allowed to engage in, which brings a little bit of the disruptive out but but instead also brings in a little bit more of the political consensus because the politicians and the societies you act in are going to be more accepting of what it is you're actually trying to do. And I, you mentioned this early on. I think that one of the core problems that, that companies face, or public policy departments face, is they have to explain to people who are engineers and or lawyers that the political problem is not the same as an engineering problem or a legal problem. The engineering problem is, does it work? The legal, is it legal or illegal? The political problem is, how do we live together? And that's why most of the political problems actually are better understood as negotiations than competitions or even design problems that some of the engineers would would like to think of them. You know, it's that's a stupid system. I don't know how often I've heard that about politics. And I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what politics tries to do. But let's let's back out. So we're we're now we're sort of deep in the weeds. We want to back out and we have this company, they're at the threshold of building their strategic public policy team. And we're sort of we we have, have just confused them enough by saying that it really doesn't matter where it report into, you can report into comms and legal and all these places. But what you really need is this cross-functional mechanism that allows you to deal effectively with reputation. You can't be, to your point, unidimensional. So so they're with us so far. What's the next thing we tell them? Yeah, so, so I think, again, being very 
clear about who is doing what. So you need this cross-functional team on it, uh, and I'm very much in the same place as as you were there, and we did similar things at Facebook where we tried to get cross-functional teams to worry about the big issues. But within that, you need to be clear what the public policy team is doing and what brief you're giving them. Um, I I used to, people ask me sort of what you did, and I, I said, you know, essentially I was responsible for anything that any government anywhere wanted to raise with with the company I work for. Um, and, and that's okay to a certain extent. So that's sort of, there's some clarity there that my customers are governments. Uh, government, but they're policymakers. Well, that, that's the thing, yeah. So, so again, the, the interesting what's in a name. There are different names to these teams. You can call it a public policy team or just a policy team. And I actually found, I get a lot of confusion by calling it a policy team because Certainly, when when it comes to a user-generated content platform like Facebook, there's private policy, the policy that Facebook applies to its users when they can have an account, what they can say on the platform. And then there's public policy, uh, what you know, which is done by politicians. So public policy was probably the, the name I most like because that encompasses everybody. That's governments, politicians, NGOs working in the policy space. But... Other people use other versions. There's government affairs. It's uh, more as an another American name, name I, I feel, I government affairs. affairs. It's more, it is. A government affair, you would ex- expect that a government affairs team to be um, a team that is is more uh, modeled on the DC version of the kind of work that we do. Uh, is that unfair? Do you think that's the case? I, I, I think it is more. I think it, uh, you're, you're in, a, in America sort of more... Um, uh, partly, I mean, the teams are sort of bigger and more developed, but there's, a, um, I think, a much sort of stronger sense of these are people and it, within government affairs. These are the people that deal with the executive. These are the people that deal with the legislature. In a sense, it sort of reflects that they're much more um, uh, solidified separation of powers. And then in many other countries, it's just more amorphously, you know, what do policy, what are policymakers interested in, whichever position they hold. Um, I, I guess one way to think about it is, if lawyers are dealing with current legislation, your public policy team's primary interest is in future yeah. legislation. So it's in what's going to come down the track. If you said what's their core mission, it's always good to have a very sort of crisp core mission within that deal with anything that think gets thrown at you. Well, a lot of the things that get thrown at you could be dealt with by other people. So your comms team, your communications team might deal with some of the reputational stuff. If it's a politician saying something you know hostile to your company it's not not necessarily a public policy uh, sort of expertise issue to, to decide what to say back um but the, the idea of you know going from where we are today to some new piece of legislation being in place creating some new kind of regulatory framework affecting your industry in two or three years time that is absolutely, I would say, the core work of the public policy team is to be across that, to understand, not necessarily to oppose it, and there's a sort of perception that all yeah. you do is try and stop it, but to be involved in the conversations that will lead to some kind of legislation or regulation in the future that affects your sector. That, I would say, is your yeah. primary function. And then all of this other stuff is sort of in support of and potentially a sort of bonus to that. Because I just think you're uniquely placed to do that. You know, say comms people can deal with reputational stuff. Lawyers can deal with court cases today under current legislation. The policy team uniquely is positioned to 
be involved in the shape of future. I think the reputational like, stuff, I probably have a little bit of a different take on because I think reputation is sort of the sum total of what you do across policy, marketing, comms, and your sales and business practices, frankly. I mean, sort of a, a broader concept for me, but I, I, I think you're absolutely right on... I remember the first motto, the sort of short, crisp motto that the Google policy team had was clear path, sort of clear path for the company, which I really liked because it, it contained two things, right? One was if there is really bad legislation coming down, you need to make sure that you try to fix it so that it's, it's better. And, you know, you can, you can oppose a law, you can shape a law, whatever it is. But the other part about clearing a path was that you need to also make sure that the kind of innovation we want to engage in is socially acceptable that it has the institutional frameworks that it needs, that it has the acceptance it needs from political circles, that that you have the license to innovate, as it were. We always talk about permissionless innovation, but there's really no such thing. You have to have at least implicit permission from the society you're in to change it. And I think that, that to me, was a little bit of what, what policy teams are meant to do. And it's about the operating environment and finding enabling uh, structures and ideas in it, like institutions you can build and other things you can do, and even putting laws on the books that clarify something that allows you to innovate more uh, hastily. And then it's it's sort of the the uh, defensive part, which is making sure that laws that are you know in by necessity put in place are not destructive or or overly restrictive or make it very hard for you to continue to expand and innovate and think what you about what you want to do next. So I I think that's right. So if we we if we sort of have that be our motto that you're managing and I think not just regulators or politicians, but everyone that shapes that environment, then then you have a couple of border cases that I think are interesting. So what do you think about a policy team and how should it be involved in, say, a competition investigation? It's, it's, um, again, I, th- I think the, the uh, policy team's focus should be on the, the, the way the environment is going. So, so in a, let's look at a competition investigation. There is a, a technical legal investigation uh, which is taking place under current competition law and I actually think that should be squarely with the lawyers. And, and I think for all sorts of reasons, it's actually, it's just not great reputationally or potentially legally for people to be from the policy team sort of playing too much around the sides of that, um, given that, that it is a strict technical legal matter. But at the same time, what you typically get in the run-up to a competition investigation is the scenario you describe where it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's because competitors are lobbying politicians and or regulators. And there is absolutely legit and actually a core part of your function as a policy team that is, is in a sense, uh, being uh, acted against for you to be defending yourself. So to the point at which the investigation is launched, you should be super active. And then within a a classic sort of competition investigation, what you often get is, uh, a a political drive either to change competition law because the investigation shows that the regulator can't do the things that they want to do or or to sort of extend re- remits of regulators to do more in future and again that's where you know because it's future legislation exactly where the policy team should come in so they should stay close to the investigation absolutely i should not be running or or trying to subvert an investigation that's taking place you know it's for lawyers to respond to regulators to deal with that but they should be active 
before investigations start, doing their core job, defending the company uh, and making sure politicians have the company's narrative as well. And again, people who are on the other side won't like that, but it's legit that politicians have both narratives. And then they should be staying very close to it to understand the fallout. And the fallout, I say, in many cases, is going to be calls for future legislation uh, to remedy whatever is seen as a deficiency from the case. And that future legislation squarely sits within I the think that's a, I think that's a really great way of illustrating it. And I think it's sort of when, whenever legislation is in motion and not addressed, you have a policy team leading on it. But when it's being executed on, when a legal team is sort of uh, really needed, is that when you're executing on the law on the books. Let's take another edge case that's interesting. So um, one that's close to our hearts. We have in our society a narrative that's sometimes referred to as the tech lash. There are tons of different authors and organizations that are, are espousing different versions of this. It's the technology is bad for you, technology industry companies are bad, or this specific company is bad. So is that something that you can address with a comms team and a marketing team? Or is there a role for public policy to reach out to people like, you know, people who are, are sort of uh, thought leaders in this space? How do you segment out prominent academics is one example, for example? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a great question because that is truly multidimensional and there, there's a lot of different sort of interests at stake. I, I would have said, again, if um, we all, all of the different functions need to come at a problem like that. Um, and again, I, people who are on the other side will, will sort of discount tech companies defending themselves. But if they're not going to speak up, it's not a comprehensive debate. <laughs> and uh, I, I think debate should have all sides uh, aired. Um, and in this case, there is, there is a case to be made, and that case has to be made by different people across the, the companies. It's not from one function. But within that, there will be a particular strand which says, so, so part of the tech last debate is saying, you know, these companies are evil, they're destroying society in, in various sort of more or less sophisticated ways. Um, and because that is happening, we should dot, 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 dot. And in the we should... Uh, there's often a case to say we should legislate in this way or that way. And that's the point at which I think the policy team needs to be thoroughly involved. So so whether the person advocating the legislation is an academic or an actual politician or a commentator or an NGO, at the point at which um, tech lash uh, leads to a regulator or legislative proposal, um, that's really that should be the sharp end of where where uh, policy teams are, and either they should support the proposal or they should explain why they oppose it. But they should be fully involved in in the debate about legislative proposals that result from the analysis of the alleged harm. The that alternative being model would be to say that when you reach the point where you have the dot dot dot, you've already lost. So you need to engage with the folks earlier and need to talk to the thoughts leaders as they're sort of as they're as they're having their thoughts as it were and sort of really talk through these things and be out there and talk to every academic or NGO or you know thought leader in the, in the columnist kind of writer that, that writes about this stuff and it, it turns out that I think that's the that's the area where uh, 
what comms and policy uh, interact most. And co- I see companies doing this in different ways. There are those that have comms people who reach out to thought leaders and try to have in-depth off-the-record conversations with them and introduce them to leaders at the company, etc. And then there are those that have policy people who are out there who are academics in their own right and have a great background and are talking to them and, and sort of really trying to make sure that this community understands the company's perspective before they get to the dot, dot, dot. And, and I, I tend to think that, that while that is ideal, it's also enormously resource uh, intensive because there are so many people that you have to uh, be out there. So you have to have a hard bar at the dot, dot, dot level where you have to, when there's a legislative proposal, policy team actually needs to be there. Then you have the hard problem of strategic engagement with people before they get there. Because if you can engage a few of them, so you get at least a little bit of diversity in the debate, I think that can be a, a huge help, at least. Mm. So, so that brings us into one of the really tricky areas when you're building a team, which, which is um, the lobbyist mm. question. Uh, and so, so the assumption is, of most people, that a policy person working for a company is a mere lobbyist. And we can, we can dig into that, but they, they are simply representing the views of the company uh, to the outside world. And in a sense that they're not themselves experts with a valid voice in the debate. And I think we probably both of us <laughs> like to think that um, our interest in internet issues predated any employment that we took, that we've got something useful to say, that that we're not going to you know say things that we fundamentally disagree with simply because that suits our employers. We're actually going to you know, uh, contribute something useful to the debate, but I'm sure we've both again found that challenging in the sense in the sense that when you try and engage in the debate, you're discounted immediately. Yeah, you work for the tech company, you're taking their money. Uh, what you're saying is not sincere; it's it's merely a reflection of your salary. Um, and I think this is a perennial challenge. It is a genuine challenge. As you're again, if we're giving advice, you're building a po- policy team because what what you then sort of may end up doing is saying, well. If everyone's going to just treat my people as mere lobbyists and not independent experts, I may as well just hire mere lobbyists. And then what I'll try and do is fund external experts uh, who don't work for my company but are able to kind of espouse the, the sort of positions that I think need to be injected into the debate that are valid for the debate. And this is a real it's a challenge. challenge but I, also, you... I tend to think that uh, I call this the mouthpiece theory of public policy that, that you sort of have. I, in my head, I have this this uh, image of mouth of Sauron when he comes out and speaks to the, to the massed <laughs> forces of, of Middle Earth and uh, and sort of gives voice to to Sauron. And that's the sort of theory of the, the lobbyist. I, I find it deeply flawed for one very simple reason. I think that the flaw is that you're assuming that the the lobbyist is only doing work outside, sort of project company opinion but the work going back inside is doubly important you need to edit the company you need to make sure you change the company's understanding because if you don't serve that translator role rather than the mouthpiece role uh, the company is ultimately not going to succeed because the the mouthpiece theory suggests that there's an all-knowing all-wise individual somewhere at the company who can espouse the political propositions that the company believe to be true and that you then sort of carry those stone tablets that's away to the parliament and hand them over. But there is no Moses or central point that can do that. The opinions of a company, the public policy perception that the company has of the world needs to be shaped by the team. So I think my, my strong advice, and I hear you because I think, you know, I talk to companies about this sometimes when they want to build a policy team. I love having those conversations. And that's the 
one thing that I always always try to leave them with, hire people who like what you do and want you to do it successfully and are happy to tell you when you're doing it wrong and can then go out and also talk to the politicians. Because if you don't, you're going to shortchange yourself. Your ability to sort of shape the environment is just going to go down by by factors, and I think that's that's uh, that's really interesting. That also goes to to the to another question that's really interesting, and that is, okay, you've decided strategically that you need a policy team now, so you should probably really go hire an ex politician, right? Because that's what policy teams do. Let's see if you can find, you know, a former president of the commission or a commissioner or or a high functioning. And, 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 and that's another interesting conflict where we're sort of we have a little bit different backgrounds there. And I think also different experiences. But but it's really funny to see how companies end up on the, the sort of charismatic leader theory or the craftsperson uh, who sort of really is, is able to do this yes. this work. And, and I, uh, I, I think both can work under different circumstances, but it's, it's a version of what you're describing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately in terms of hiring, you, you want the, – the big mistake is to hire um, uh, a bunch of clones. <laughs> and so what, what you're – the way I would describe it is it's like building a jigsaw puzzle. There's a picture, and, and you want to complete the picture, but with a jigsaw puzzle, uh, each piece is differently shaped. And the important thing is to put the right pieces together in the right way, and then you get the picture. Um, it's not to snip uh, all the uh, little protuberances off the end of the jigsaw puzzles and try and cram them together. And I think that happens sometimes too often, not just in policy teams, but in companies generally, that you try and sort of put together, a, uh, you have a model and you say, this is the kind of person I want, and I'm going to get 20 of those. Um, in, in reality, you want 20 quite different people with different skills, softer skills, harder skills, more technical skills. And, and so the, I think the, generally you want there will be a role. Socioeconomic exactly. background, because that diversity then reflects the society you're in. I think that's the other thing that sometimes people go, they, they look for, and, and it's ironic that we say this, look for white middle-aged men who have a legal background. Now, yeah. I have a legal background, I'm not sure you yeah. do, but I think that, that that's sort of the, the, the template in many people's minds, and that leads you, and that will lead you in the wrong way, I think. Right. But you I'm are Swedish. Yes. I, I am Swedish. Yeah, qualifies as diversity yeah, in an American this, this company. This ethnic minority is, um, is actually really a minority when it comes to to policy leaders. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, I say, yeah, that brings you joking aside. That sort of brings you some other um, sort of dimensions. But this, this sort of facing into the company stuff again, I c- couldn't agree with you more strongly. That if what we are uh, uh, as policy team, sort of futurologists, we're looking at where legislation regulation is going one of the most useful things for a company is to understand that and to be able to say you know that um this general data protection regulation it's definitely going to happen <laughs> you know not, not not sort of you know in two or three years time we're going to be in a landscape where uh this this is how privacy is going to be regulated in europe and i know because i you know i'm working there i live there i'm sort of culturally plugged in i know the politicians and i know this is going to happen it, that is super important to the company as opposed to the you know the more sort of transactional world i pay you to stop this thing <laughs> you know so you're the policy just go and stop it it's like no uh, this is not going to change i can i can help you understand how the company is going to have to adapt 
Um, there are some things, you know, around this legislation where if we have a strong case that something is not in the public interest, not not it's the company's interest to, to amend the legislation. No one cares about the company's interest. But if there are places where we think it's not going to work in the public interest, as the policy person, I can take that and I can share that and we may get some changes. But that's about it. <laughs> but the, the thing is not going to stop. And And so, again, having a policy team that understands that, um, when you want to know, you know, what the landscape is going to be like for internet companies in Turkey in two years' time, there is no substitute for having somebody who is uh, totally familiar with what's happening in Turkey, who reads Turkish newspapers in Turkish language, and can kind of bring that back into your company. So that's what I mean. That's the jigsaw puzzle that that sort of reflects all of the challenges that are going to shape the landscape your business is going to be in in two or three years' time. Those are the people that you need on board. Yes, and 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 you need to prepare the policy team as you build it out strategically. You need to prepare for a function where it can actually feed that stuff back into the company. So, as a leader, as sort of a part of the leadership of a company, when you've decided to get a public policy team, the next thing you need to decide is how am I going to actually make use of the kinds of insights and the intelligence and all of the possible uh, changes that this team will generate? Because you're not getting. It's not like hiring a lawyer. It's not like saying, you know, I want somebody to represent me. That's not it. You're you're hiring a translator or an interpreter, even a better uh, metaphor, perhaps. And, and I think that that that's something that's not always brought home to people. They think that they're hiring somebody who will now solve their policy problems for them, or worse, solve the reputation problem for them. And reputation is never going to be one team's issue. It's actually always going to be a CEO issue. The reputation of your company reflects on the character of your company, and that is set by your CEO. So I think that there is there is some preparatory work that needs to come from a company that says, okay, we now want to set up a public policy team. And that is really figuring out how will we channel back in the kind of work that these folks do, the insights they have, and the way that they can help us understand the world. If you do that, if you build that mechanism to ingest that kind of, of information, I think you'll be vastly better off than if you think you're building a shield that will sort of make it possible for the company to do whatever it wishes to do without having to care about the political world it operates in. And I think that this, that's, that's, you see those very... Okay. Yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's a whole whole um, conversation to have you had about that because getting that right is really hard. They get, again, it, perhaps ironic um, for people listening to this who are sort of outside, who, who what the face they will see of public policy people is when they go out and defend their company. And that's right. That's kind of part of your job. Uh, what they don't see is is um, the policy people sort of giving warnings internally to the company where, where um, I certainly have this experience. You may have a, you know, the policy team gets known as the doom and gloom merchants. Uh, they're, they're the people who come in and, oh, you know, if we do that with the product, it's going to be a disaster and there's going to be all kinds of regulation. And so, yeah. which, which in itself yeah. can be a problem. This obstruction you yeah. So it could be a, it could, that, exactly, and the policy teams can face the challenge not not because you know they're seen as uh, too flippant or too confident about changing regulation, but quite the opposite. They're seen as the people who are always predicting that um, everything's going to go wrong. And there's a, there's a, I, there's a sort of uh, say a contrast there with the external facing work that you have to do. Um, uh, as a necessary part of the job. Um, so you're right, getting that communication right so it is accurate. Uh, and the main, main, most important thing is that policy people are realistic and, and do know their stuff and do understand the political landscape and do understand what's happening. But so if you can do that and you can accurately 
assess what's happening and then effectively communicate that back to the company then the company may you know ignore your advice and carry on and do the thing anyway but you've done your best um you've been able to give them very clear useful advice and hopefully they will act on it and, there, and there's, make there's something here about the way you give that advice that i think is also important and has to do with how you design this mechanism because i think making clear early on to a policy team that you really want to hear the unvarnished truth of what's likely to happen if you do x y or z is, is important but then for the policy team to be clear about the fact that they should describe first what will happen and then what they can do to mitigate it should that be the case assuming that the business decision will be made on many more dimensions than just a political dimension right because i think that the way that you the the the, the challenge is that somebody who is is really uh, empathic and really wants to dive into this and feels very strongly for the company will probably come back and say don't do this which is never going to be effective what's more effective is to say I see what you're trying to do here. Here's what that will probably lead to with a certain likelihood. And here's how we could mitigate that. But we couldn't We couldn't mitigate all of the risk, which means that we're likely to end up with these harms as a result of, of what you're trying to do. That's fine. I just want you to know as you're making the decision that that's sort of, that's where we're heading here. And I think, I think being able to dispassionately describe consequences, mitigation options and resulting harms is, is something that a policy team needs to do and not, not to sort of end in too far in the doom and gloom territory. And I've seen this in escalations many times when somebody escalates, uh, we can't do this because they feel very strongly about it. And it always falls flat. It always falls flat because nobody, especially not the kind of creative, enthusiastic people who drive new and, uh, and, and sort of growing companies, want to be told what they can't do. They want to be told how they are able to do it or what it will mean in terms of costs should they, should they want to do it, which is, which is also something you have to tweak in your, your sort of mechanism for ingesting policy advice. Exactly. I think, I mean, it can actually go wrong in both directions. Um, yes. So the person who comes in and everything's going to be the end of the world, they're going to stop being listened to. And, and they, they, you know, they need to be honest about whether, whether they're seeing the full picture or whether they're just so focused on their own aspect of it. Yes, you're going to get shouted at by some politicians for something you've done. But if it is actually the right thing for your company to do, it's a good product development and, you know, it's necessary and you, you, you're happy with it, then you need to, to sort of temper your your negativity a little. At the same time, to be entirely careless and kind of go, oh, it's just, you know, do what we like and don't worry, I'll deal with it. And yeah, that's not really helping either um, when, you, when you're not sort of accurately understanding where you're going to get to, because then people are going to be surprised when things turn out badly. So calibrating it so that you're accurate, I think is right. And the other thing just at a personal level as well is, is, you know, um, you don't want to be working for a company where you disagree with most of the decisions. Uh, so, so you do want. At the same time, you can't expect the company to be a hundred percent aligned. The, the best analogy I've found for this is being in a political party. I, you know, am still and have been a loyal member of a political party. You would expect to agree with you know, 75% plus of the positions taken by your party. If it drops down to 50% or below, you're probably in the wrong party. Um, but it's it's unlikely that you'll ever, you know, get 100% of uh, the positions taken by your party to be consistent with your own. So same, when you're working for the company, you, you want to be agreeing with most of what they do. When you do ring the alarm bell and say something is a terrible idea and really shouldn't happen, you do want the company sometimes to to take your side and say, right, we won't do it. Um, 
at the same time, it, it, again, you're you're part of the system. You are going to sometimes have to go and defend things when you lost the argument, but you want to know that you were well heard. You want to still respect the people who made the decision you don't agree with, and and you don't want to feel so divorced from the position that you can no longer represent the company effectively. Uh, again, that does happen to people from time to time that they they fall out, uh, just as they do with political parties. They stop agreeing with their party and they have to leave and join another one. And that can happen between a policy person and the company. It's much more honest to leave if that's the case than to keep going out defending something you disagree Because I think otherwise you're, you're, it's, everyone's going to detect when you try to defend this position that you don't really agree with it. And I think if, if that's the case, if it shines through that you're, that you're sort of representing a position you don't agree with, the, the, that dishonesty is enormously destructive for your personal <laughs> development and for, for the company as well. And so, so recapping, and I, I sense that we will have to do a, a second session on this because we're, we're currently at the point where we <laughs> said that policy teams usually uh, start organically. When you reach a strategic threshold, you need to start thinking about how you organize this team and who you're going to hire. And that's a, that's a sort of a really hard set of questions. You also need to think about how you're going to make sure you ingest the policy advice that you're getting so the company can understand the political environment it's in. And the policy team then needs to give, be given the mandate to shape that environment and make sure that it's it's conducive to to your your future business growth because that's the, that's the sort of the bottom line and and i think that you know if i if i were to sketch out a few more things that we should talk about in the next session when we do this i think we should talk about um, you know where do you place your policy lead and we should talk a little bit more about the politician versus the versus the public policy professional and how to think about that and then i think we should talk a little bit about you know what are the what is the difference between regional policy people and the people who work at headquarters or in what is sometimes referred to as central teams? I think both you and I have built central teams at, at large tech companies and we, we have an understanding of roughly what it is that they need to do. And then I think we, we should talk a little bit about, uh, you know, who's your first hire in the market and who's your second hire in the market. Because I think those, those are sometimes very, very different people. Juniority, seniority in these teams is, is an, another dimension that we'll have to get back to. But uh, we, we are almost at the hour and uh, we need to be uh, compassionate with our listeners. <laughs> Uh, and I think it, I think it would be um, uh, really interesting to do uh, a, a part two of this discussion um, in in the next episode. Yes, I, 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 no, I, these conversations. I think I hope I hope listeners are enjoying some of the insights they get into. Um, uh, how the sausages are made, as well as what the content of the sausages is. And that's, that's, the, that's an old saying. I guess it translates to other languages as well. They'll have their own version, which is, uh, yeah, le- legislation like sausages is something where you never want to see how it's made. Just enjoy yes. the finished product. Um, and we're giving some insights into how, how the sort of tech policy uh, sausages are made, uh, which m- may not always well, – not everyone's going to agree with it. Some, some people are going to feel that this is sort of, as we discussed before, sort of devious and underhand but hey we want to share it openly uh, hopefully it's informative to people um, and we can mix this up with actually talking about some of the substantive issues that well that concludes regulate tech episode 12 and you can find the podcast at your website which is 
www.regulate.tech. Thank you. And to, to all of our listeners, um, we really enjoy your feedback and all of the comments or ideas you have are welcome, um, especially on if you want to hear more about the substance or if you want to hear a little bit more about the craft. We, we are sort of, we are, we're going to mix both, I think. But it's if you have a preference, do let us know. And we hope that we will have you with us next week. Thank you and goodbye.